and as is common, it ends in great hope and renewal. And so there's a lot to look forward to as we go through the study. Um, but with any good Bible study and as a good Bible student, it's always good to have context. We need to understand the context of what we're reading. Because as we come to the book of Ezekiel, we want to place it in both its theological context as well as its historical context. Now, we have these books. It's, we call this the Bible, right? But it's really a collection of 66 books that have been captured together into a single volume that we call the Bible. And although they are generally put in a chronological order, they are also grouped together in a thematic way. And so we have, generally speaking, we have the Old Testament and we have the New Testament. We're obviously going through a series in the Old Testament. And within the Old Testament, you have some groupings as well. Um, even though generally, again, they're chronological, we do have the first five books of the Bible that are called the Pentateuch, or the Law, uh, and that covers uh, Genesis through Deuteronomy. And then we have the historical books. Those run from Joshua through Esther. And then we have the poetic books that cover Job through the Song of Solomon. And then we have the prophetic books. Isaiah through Malachi, and sometimes the prophetic books are also broken up into the major prophets and the minor prophets. We are currently in the major prophets, and we are in the book of Ezekiel. And what I'd like to do is to begin by establishing some theological context to what is going on in the book of Ezekiel. And to do that, we want to actually go back to the book of Genesis. So if you'll do that with me, well, let's turn to Genesis chapter 12, and we want to talk about the covenants, and and, base, uh, and to start with, we want to talk about the Abrahamic covenant. Would somebody be willing to read Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3? Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Go ahead, Tom. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house, the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, that... You will be a blessing. It will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Thank you. So in Genesis 12, we have what's referred to as the Abrahamic covenant. And God here declares that he is going to, through a man named Abram, who will later be named Abraham, um, raise up a people from his loins, from him, and from whom he will make a great nation. And that nation is to be a blessing to all the earth. God was going to raise up a people, which we now know to be the nation of Israel, through whom he would bless the world. God's purpose for Israel was not Israel, right? It does not terminate on Israel. God's purpose for Israel was to be a means to bless the entire world. And so that's the Abrahamic covenant. And further, we want to look at the Mosaic Covenant. And so if you'll f turn a few pages over to Exodus chapter 19, and if somebody be willing to read verses 5 through 6, uh, we will see the Mosaic Covenant. Now let me set this up a little bit before somebody volunteers to read that. Um, Exodus 19. Matt, thank you. Um, God had rescued the uh, Israelites out of Egypt from slavery. They had 
crossed the Red Sea, and they're about to receive the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. And God declares to them the following. Go ahead, Matt. Uh, five through six, please. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possessions among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So again, this is the Mosaic Covenant. This is a um, relationship that God makes, a contract that God makes with the people. And you see two things here in verse 6. That he calls them to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, what are priests? Do you guys have an idea of what role a priest served? In a very general sense, can anybody give kind of a quick definition of what a priest's function was? Pardon me? A teacher, okay. And Matt? Point people towards God. Okay, yes, a, a priest was to represent, um, point people to God, but they also served this role of representing God to the people. Priests were to represent God to the people, and then obviously also, as Matt said, represent the people to God, often through intercession or praying um, or through sacrificial systems. Now, this calling for them to be a kingdom of priests comes before Leviticus, where the original, the uh, full Levitical priesthood is established and all the rules and regulations that govern the priesthood. So in a sense, God is calling every individual person within the nation of Israel to be a priest, to represent God to the people, to the nations. And the way they were to accomplish this was to be what is called a holy nation. The people were to be holy. What better way to represent a holy God than to be a holy nation? This is one of the first, this is the covenant that is conditional. Uh, in Deuteronomy 28, we read that God says, if you will obey my voice, you will be blessed. If you disobey, you will be cursed. And in Deuteronomy 28, we read about what those blessings are, if they obey, and we also read about what those curses are. We obviously know, through reading scripture, that Israel fails to keep the law. They disobey, and they become increasingly corrupt and idolatrous. So God brings judgment and warns them through prophets. One of the results of disobedience and one of the curses that they would experience would be dispersion. They would be scattered throughout all the nations, which becomes relevant to our study of Ezekiel. But again, God brings judgment and warns the people through prophets, and Ezekiel is one of those prophets. So, you have your outlines, and, and this is going to be our general working outlined. Um, and this is kind of a general way of breaking up the book of Ezekiel. It can be broken up in, in a number of ways to certain levels of detail. But for our study this morning, what we aim to do is just look at chapters 1 through 3, and we'll call that the call of Ezekiel. Call of Ezekiel. This is God, uh, God's calling on Ezekiel to serve as a prophet. And then we'll look at a what amounts to an approximately a seven-year period of various judgments that God levels upon not only Judah and Jerusalem, but also 
other nations surrounding Jerusalem. So we have judgments. And then we'll see, uh, thirdly, or letter C, I don't know if I forget how I've outlined this for you. Um, we, we will look at Jerusalem's fall and a restoration of hope or hope restored. And then lastly, we'll look at the vision of the restored temple. And as always, this is interactive. Um, I'll aim to answer whatever questions you may have. Tim was preparing to preach this morning in place of um, Greg, so unfortunately I don't have him as my backup. So um, some questions may be left unanswered. But feel free to ask nonetheless. This is not an attempt to try to quelch any questions. But so, so any questions at this point? The context and the places to places was during the Babylonian captivity, correct? Yes, yeah, we'll, and we'll get into okay, some of those I'm details. Sorry, we're going to, you know, I've, we've set the theological context and, and we'll do that. So good segue. We'll talk about the historical context next. So, so any other questions before we resume? Okay, good. So historical context, um, we'll look at the call of Ezekiel. If you recall from last week, if you were here, Jason um, did a review of some of the history of that places us uh, where we are today in regards to our study. And because there's a little bit of overlap between what happened in Jeremiah and what's happening in Ezekiel. But here's some highlights. I won't belabor the whole, whole lesson, and you can refer to it later um, through our YouTube channel. But um, here's some highlights from last, last week. Uh, Josiah was, was a king, and he died the Egyptians, and he, and he died fighting against the Egyptians. And Jehoiakim was installed as king of Judah. And remember, Judah is the southern kingdom of the now split kingdom. The northern kingdom is Jerusalem, the southern kingdom was Judah. <clears throat> and after Josiah died, Jehoiakim was installed as king. Now he reigned for about 11 years, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And so God sent King Nebuchadnezzar, uh, the king of Babylon, to remove him and then placed Jehoiachin, or Jehoiakim, um, who was his uh, Jehoiakim's son, he placed him as king. Uh, in a whopping three months' time, uh, he proved himself to be unfaithful to God as well and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And so again, God sent King Nebuchadnezzar to remove him from his throne and sent him into exile to Babylon, east to Babylon, along with some of the upper class and other, other groups of people among the people of Israel. Ezekiel was among one of those people. Uh, who was brought into exile during this deportation to Babylon. Um, so they're now in exile, and uh, this happened around 597 B.C. So would somebody be willing to read uh, verses 1 through 3? And as we do, I want you all to make some observations about what we can learn about Ezekiel, just through verses 1 through 3. So Ezekiel chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Paul? Now it came about in the 30th year on the fifth day of the fourth month while I was by the river Chever among the exiles the heavens were open and I saw visions of God on the fifth of the month in the fifth year of King Jehoiakim's exile the word of the Lord came expressly to Ezekiel the priest son of Buzai in the land of the Chaldeans by the river Chever and there was the hand of the Lord that came upon him good thank you so just looking at the short section, what can we learn about Ezekiel? Just basic observations. Uh, yep. Well, he's in Babylon. 
Okay, and he's in Babylon, so he's in exile. Okay, Ezekiel's in exile. And how long has he been there? Probably less than three months, huh? Well, here we see it was the fifth year of the exile. Yeah, so he's in exile for five years. Any other observations? I mean, he was a son of what? He was a son of a... He was a son, <laughs> he was a son of a priest, okay? Um, so, and we, we learn of him here <clears throat> that he... The first verse here says, in the first section, it says, in the 30th year. Now, this commonly is, is um, referenced, references his year, his age. He's 30 years old. Now, why is that significant? Well, we learn that he's a priest. He's the son of a priest. And so he was raised up to eventually serve as a priest in the temple. And now he's in exile He's not in Jerusalem. He's not in the temple. And it's his 30th year. The 30th year is the year you would start your service as a priest. And so you've got to imagine this man who has all his life been trained up by his dad uh, to begin serving in this role in the, in the temple is now in exile, away from the place where he is to serve, and is sitting by this canal and... He's just, what am I going to do with my life, right? You can imagine. This is not what Scripture states, but you can imagine a man has planned his way, but the Lord has directed his steps elsewhere. So his name is Ezekiel, but interestingly enough, the name never shows up more than twice in the entire book, once here and later on in chapter 24. But instead, and, and his name actually means God strengthens me. God strengthens me, and he will need that strength. Uh, as we get into some of the things he's asked to do. But his name is, he's not referred to by name, but he's often referred to as son of man. Son of man. It's used over 90 times in, in the book of Ezekiel. And that simply means he's just a human being. He's just a person. And this highlights the stark contrast between a holy God and a mere mortal who God will then use to communicate to the people. But he's sitting by the, the Kabar Canal when all of a sudden he receives a vision. And we read about this vision in verses 4 through 28. And we won't go through all of it, but let me just read some of it for you. Remember, he's, he's um, in exile. He's sitting by the canal. He's, it's his 30th birthday. And now all of a sudden we read this in, in verse 4. As I looked, behold, a stormy wind came out of the north, and a great cloud with brightness around it, and fire flashing forth continually. And in the midst of the fire, as it were, gleaming metal. And from the midst of it came the likeness of four living creatures. And this was their appearance. They had a human likeness, but each had four faces, and each of them had four wings. Their legs were straight, and the soles of their feet were like the sole of a calf's foot. And they sparkled like burnishing bronze. Under their wings, on their four sides, they had human hands, and the four had their faces and their wings thus. Their wings touched one another. Each one of them went straight forward without turning as they went. So we've got this amazing vision of this storm that's developing. A stormy wind came out of the north and a great cloud, and with it there's flashes of fire and lightning and all of this uh, amazing um, activity. And he sees within this cloud four living creatures, each with four faces, 
one human, the rest animal-like. They have four wings each. Two of them are outstretched. Two of them cover the bodies. And then later on in verse 16, we read, As for the appearance of the wheels, um, oh, I'm sorry, back at 15, Now as I looked at the living creatures, I saw a wheel on the earth beside the living creature, one for each of the four of them. So underneath each of these creatures, whatever you want to call them, there are wheels. And above their heads was the likeness of a throne, and above it was the likeness of a human appearance. And this appearance, there was brightness all around. And in verse 26, Ezekiel describes what he saw. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. Here we have what is pictured as the throne of God. What's it doing here in Babylon? It should be in the temple. Ezekiel falls on his face. God is with Ezekiel and all those in exile. He is with them. He has not abandoned his people. And we'll learn later on why the throne is in Babylon. But Ezekiel responds by just falling on his face, which is clearly an act of worship. He recognized that this was the Lord himself visiting him. And what happens next? The spirit enters Ezekiel and lifts him up, and God speaks to him. And this is what he says to him. In Ezekiel chapter 2, verses 3 through 6, he says this, And he said to me, Son of man, I send you to the people of Israel, to nations of rebels who have rebelled against me, they and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. The descendants also are impotent and stubborn. I send you to them, and you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord, and whether they hear or refuse to hear, for they are a rebellious house, they will know that a prophet has been among them. And you, son of man, be not afraid of them, nor be afraid of their words. Through briars and thorns are with you, and you sit on scorpions. Do not be afraid of their words, nor be dismayed at their looks, for they are a rebellious house. Here, Ezekiel receives his call. He's going to be a prophet. He's going to speak to, these, to his people and level judgment on them. And he is not to be afraid because God strengthens him. He will be with him during this time. So God calls Ezekiel to bring judgment upon the people of Israel. And as we continue to walk through, feel, again, feel free to ask questions. But um, what he also does is he raises up Ezekiel as a watchman. He, he labels him or he, he calls him to be a watchman. What's a watchman in, in military terms or, or whatever? What, what do you think is a function of a watchman? Jeff? Somebody who looks out for danger. Okay, somebody who looks out for danger. Do you think the Israelites are in danger? Are we talking about military danger? Well, God raises him up because what's happening is God is going to prophesy that the temple in Jerusalem is, is going to be destroyed. This is not an if situation. This is it will be. It's a when it occurs. And so he calls Ezekiel to warn them. And he places a great responsibility on Ezekiel. He tells him in, in chapter 3, verses 16, 
and on. He said, if Ezekiel, if you don't warn these people and they perish, it's on you. But if you warn them and they refuse to listen, it's on them. Uh, and and we, we think about this is that here, even during a time where pending judgment is coming, that Jerusalem will be destroyed, God in his grace warns them again. Deuteronomy 28, uh, Genesis, uh, we have numerous times where God warns and warns and warns of, of the consequences of rebellion. And again, here, when the temple is going to be destroyed, we see God um, once again warning them and offering an opportunity to repent. And so some, just to reflect upon is God keeps his word and does what he says. Judgment will come. And yet, he always offers an opportunity to repent. And he offers that to them as well. He warns them. The problem is, their hearts, their hearts are hard and stubborn. And he's already warned of that to Ezekiel. They will refuse to listen. Hebrews 9.27 says, And just as, is, as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Again, there is judgment coming. Um, we've been warned of it time and again, and that judgment is something that we need to listen to as well today. But he also offers a hand of, of salvation and rescue from that judgment by you casting your cares upon Christ, you coming to him and confessing your sin to him. Failure to heed the warning of this judgment results in your eternal damnation. And so here we have now God bringing judgment upon the people of Israel, but he again provides grace and opportunity to repent, and yet their hard hearts are, are stubborn. And yet we know God will take care of that hard heart as well later. But let me ask you this. What is the purpose of judgment? What do you think the purpose of judgment is? Is it simply God just venting his anger against the people and saying, fine, I'm done with you, as maybe an irrational, angry father may be toward his child? Andy? I guess uh, to bring awareness of your trespass. Okay. There's, there's a, there's a, there's a, to bring awareness of what you've done wrong, Christy? The same thing. It's just a warning to others that if you don't do the right thing, this is what could happen. Okay. So it's, a, it's, it's clearly a warning that God will do what he says he's going to do, and that, that it's, um, if, you, if you err, if you sin, there are consequences. But read with me, well, I'll read for us, Hebrews 12, 5 through 7. The Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Judgment, discipline, particularly in the case of Israel, is an act of God's love. It's an act of God's care for his people. The Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. God has chosen Israel as his people, right, to represent him on this world, in this world. 
and they've failed to do that. And so he brings judgment. But the judgment is meant to be corrective. It's meant to be an act of discipline in their lives, that they would turn from their ways and return to him. In fact, uh, Hebrews later on says, if, if, if God doesn't discipline you, you're illegitimate sons. It means you don't even belong to God. Imagine you're in a supermarket, and in the line next to you, there's this little kid who's just acting up disobedient to his mom, wants the candy, won't listen to the mother, and you're standing in line with your son, you can't go over there and discipline that kid because he's not yours, right? But let's say next week you adopt that kid. He's now your responsibility. And now you have a responsibility to discipline that child if they're acting up. We have been adopted as sons and daughters of Christ. And so the discipline that he brings into our lives is ultimately meant to be corrective, as is the case with um, the Hebrews, the, the um, Israelites. The Lord disciplines the one he loves. So judgment here is really meant to be um, corrective, and it's an act of love. And God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. In Ezekiel 33, we read about this. But let's, let's just accelerate this a little bit, because <clears throat> he's now bringing this judgment to the Israelites, and he has raised up Ezekiel as a prophet. Now, it's common that judgments are usually words spoken to people, which he will do later on. But Ezekiel is asked to bring judgment to the people in a very unique way. He's to perform street theater. Now, have you been around town and you see some random person with, you know, a sign you know, claiming the end of the world is coming, or, you know, how do you normally respond to people like that? They're a little off, you know, maybe it, maybe it causes you to pray. But let's look at what God asked, asked um, Ezekiel to do. So he's raised them up, he's, he's proclaimed, uh, you're also a watchman, you're to warn these people, but here, here's what I want you to do. I want you to keep your mouth shut, and I want you to start doing some things that are really strange. Now, God doesn't call them strange, but... Um, he does this. So uh, let's look at chapter 4 and look at the uh, initial, some of the first judgments that he calls, uh, brings up, upon um, Israel. In chapter 4, we read this, beginning at verse 1. And you, son of man, take a brick and lay it before you and engrave on it a city, even Jerusalem, and put siege works against it and build a siege wall against it and cast up and mount it a mound against it, set camps also against it, and plant battering rams against it all around. And you take an iron griddle and place it in as an iron wall between you and the city, and set your face toward it, and let it be a stage of siege, and press the siege against it. This is a sign for the house of Israel. God calls Ezekiel to build what amounts to a diorama, a little three-dimensional picture of, this, of a siege against Jerusalem. This is, you know, he sets this up in the street somewhere, um, I can imagine, and, and he's playing with toys. He's setting up this example of what is going to happen to Israel. Now, you're walking down the street and you see this, you know, with a hard heart. What are you going to do with that? What are you gonna, how are you going to view this? This guy's a little cuckoo, right? And yet this is what God calls him to do. This isn't Ezekiel 
manufacturing some new way to try to reach the people, right? Which we can be prone to do in this world. We can try to say, oh, they're not listening. I've got to go outside of God's word and concoct some new way of reaching people's hearts. No, this is God commanding Ezekiel to do this. This isn't Ezekiel going rogue. But he asks him to make this diorama. And this idea is that the siege is going to, be, is going to happen against Israel and Jerusalem and, and the temple, and it will ultimately be destroyed. And he's to do this. Uh, you can read about the siege that takes place in 2 Kings chapter 25. And this is exactly what happens. Now, what is the purpose of a siege? What, what, is the func- what functionally does a siege um, result in? You're basically trapping people within their own territory. You're starving them out. You're, you're um, demoralizing them, right, that they become weak and weak, and then you can finally bring your full attack onto them. It's to basically... Um, yeah, just to weaken weaken the, them within without food, without water, and all of that. So it's it's um, an incredible way to just overwhelm a city. Then he's also asked to lie on his side, on his left side, for 390 days, and each day represents a year of judgment uh, to the north. He's to face the north, and then he's to lay on his right side, facing the south, for another 40 days. And while doing that, he's also called, now he, he's just laying there. You know, it's, it's hard to imagine that he's actually laying there 24 hours a day, because he's also asked to eat food. He's to make himself some food. And in verse 9, we read about how he's to take wheat, barley, beans, and lentils, millet, and emmer, and put them into a single vessel and make bread. And he's to eat this during his time he's laying on his side. Now, I don't know if you've ever heard of this. I've never heard of it until I studied this, but there's this company called Ezekiel 4.9. They actually make Ezekiel 4.9 bread. Have you guys heard of this? Have you tried it? Yeah. You know, I, I was going to bring some, but I didn't think we'd want to know, we'd want to try it, because what we read next is, and your food that you shall eat be by weight, um, and water you shall drink, and, okay, here we go, verse 12. No, where is this now? Is it verse 12? Yes, thank you. We know this. Verse 12, and you shall eat it as a barley cake, baking it in their sight on human dung. So I decided not to bring any. But can you imagine? This is a picture. They're, they're under siege. They're going to experience uh, a difficulty eating food. They're going to have to figure out a way to cook their food, and that's what God is saying will happen. They're going to have to. And and Ezekiel's asked to present this as drama. This is what's going to happen to you guys. Now, Ezekiel says, Lord, I've never defiled myself in preparation to serve as priest. I've never defiled myself. I can't eat. I can't do this. And, And God graciously allows him to use cow dung instead. Um, but this is a picture of the, the judgment and the siege that's taking place and what ex- Israel, Jerusalem, is going to be experiencing. They're going to experience famine. Um, and then um, and God, in his grace, allows Ezekiel to cook his food over cow dung instead. But they will experience drought. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, they will experience a um, famine in the land. 
and uh, will have to ration their food. You read about Ezekiel being uh, required to weigh his food and all of that, all giving a picture that they're going to need to ration what they have. Then he's asked to cut his hair, bald, shave his beard, which, as a priest, he was not allowed to do. Leviticus 21.5 says, They shall not make bald patches on their heads, speaking of priests, nor shave off the edges of their beards. He's asked to cut his hair and then take a third of it, scatter it to the winds. A third of it um, he's to cut with a sword, and another third he's to scatter it to the wind. I'm sorry, and, and some will, will be destroyed in fire, some will be destroyed by the sword, and some will be scattered to the wind. And of, of those that he's to scatter to the wind, he's to take some of that and put it in his robe. There's a little remnant that he's to keep. But the scattering of hair, and, and Ezekiel describes it, um, or the Lord does it, uh, in chapter 5, verses 5 through 8, of what this means, um, of what happens is, sorry, in 5.12, a third of, of them shall die to pestilence, a third of the people of Israel will die by the sword, and a third will be scattered to the wind. And among them there is a remnant that he keeps. So not all will be fully destroyed, but many will be. Ezekiel 5, 5 through 8, he says this, Thus says the Lord God, this is Jerusalem. I have set her in the center of the nations with countries all around her, and she has rebelled against my rule by doing wickedness more than the nations and against my statutes, more than the countries all around her. For they have rejected my rules and have not walked in my statutes. Therefore, thus says the Lord, because you are more turbulent than the nations that are all around you and have not walked in my statutes or obeyed my rules, and have not acted according to the rules of the nations that are all around you. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, even I, am against you, and I will execute judgments in your midst in the sight of the nations. And as God had warned Ezekiel, no one's going to listen. You're going to do all of this, but nobody's going to listen because of their hard hearts. But God will remedy those hard hearts. There is hope for Israel. So, any questions at this point? <clears throat> if you're not intrigued to go read this on your own, I don't know what else to do. <laughs> it's pretty interesting. So we've got these dramatized, the street theater, as means by which God proclaims judgment against Israel. But then God begins to have Ezekiel serve as a judge, or as, as like a lawyer, making a legal case against Israel for all their abominations. And he does this through some various um, visions. Um, in Ezekiel 7, uh, would somebody be willing to read verses 3 through 4? Ezekiel 7, 3 through 4. Pardon me? Is there any question as to what God is doing in this, in this situation? And you know, one of the things I have failed to mention, which is significant, is the very end of that verse, it says, then you will know 
that I am the Lord. This phrase shows up about 80 times throughout this book. Obviously, God is doing something to make his name known. The people of Israel who are to represent God are not representing him as they ought. And God is more concerned about his name being known and renowned. And so you see this phrase time and again showing up throughout the entire book, um, which is why I titled our lesson, That My Name Might Be Made Known, or That My Name Would Be Known. But we see here that, that there's judgment. It's here. It's coming. It's unavoidable. Uh, I am coming to take care of business. But then God does something briefly with Ezekiel in chapter 8 through 10, where he once again takes um, Ezekiel, by way of vision, back to Jerusalem, back to the temple. And would somebody be willing to read verses, uh, chapter 8, verses 5 through 6? So Ezekiel is among some elders, and, and he has a vision that God takes him back to uh, Jerusalem. And he kind of gives him a vision of what is happening. So uh, chapter 8, verses 5 through 6. Can I get a volunteer? Matt? Then he said to me, Son of man, lift up your eyes now toward the north. So I lifted up my eyes toward the north, and behold, north of the altar gate in the entrance was the image of jealousy. And he said to me, Son of man, do you see what they are doing? The great abomination that the house of Israel are committing here, to drive me from far from my sanctuary? But you will still see greater abominations. Thank you. What, what Ezekiel is being shown here is how God's temple has been defiled by idolatrous worship. And there's a, a greater spelling out of that through the rest of chapters 8. And, and God gives to Ezekiel visions of what is happening in the temple. These people have completely disregarded me, have rebelled against me, and have instead begun worshiping the gods of the nations around them and are using my temple for that purpose. And so what does he do? In chapter 9, we read that he's going to kill the idolaters. God deploys executioners to rid the temple of these idolaters. Now, even within that moment, what you see here is he provides for those who sigh and groan over all the abominations that they see. There, there are people, apparently, in this time, who see what's going on, and they're groaning over it. They're they witness the idolatrous worship that is taking place in the temple, and they're groaning over it. They're, they're obviously grieved over what is happening. And those will be spared, whereas the others will be executed by these executioners that the Lord deploys in chapter 9. And what does God do after that? Well, God leaves the temple. He heads east. The temple he sees the same vision that Ezekiel saw uh, at the canal, and he sees this mobile temple, or this mobile throne, rather, moving east. What's east? Babylon. Babylon is east. And now maybe Ezekiel's starting to put together the picture of why he showed up in the first place. God left his temple because of the idolatrous worship that was going on. They've, they've pushed him out. 
but he's gone to be with them in exile. He has not abandoned his people. And in chapter 11, um, we see that, let me step back a little bit. Um, no, I'm, I'm right on spot. In chapter 11, we read again this great promise of hope that God gives, even though their hearts, hard, hearts are hard. We read in chapter 11, verses 17 through 20. Therefore, says the Lord, thus says the Lord, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you out of the countries where, have, where you have been scattered. And I will give you the land of Israel. And when they come after, when they come there, they will remove from it all its detestable things and all its abominations. And I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them and all. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. This is a heart issue, right? They have hard hearts. They can't change their own hard hearts, but God promises to do that. He will breathe life into their dead souls once again. So, any questions at this point? Do you see yourself in this at all? Stubborn hearts sometimes, rebellious hearts, even though we've been greatly blessed by God. Um, I mean, I certainly do. Paul? Said, I do see myself in this also. I noticed in, uh, a couple times in 7 and 8 where he said, where God said, Yet you will see still greater abominations which they are committing. It kind, of, uh, it kind of reminds me of the culture we live in now. You still see things, greater and greater abominations against God as, I mean, every week or every month. You see people are just going to the more of extreme, more of extreme, more extreme. And it's like, you know, 15. 20 years ago, you never would have thought of anybody doing something like that. But yeah. that would, that's what reminded me when, when he said, yet yeah, you will see still greater abominations. Yeah. And, and what he does in there is he takes them through the temple further and shows them the various other means of worship that are taking place. But absolutely, that's the hardening effect of sin, right? You begin to lose perspective and start creating uh, other ways of sinning that have become more and more abominable. So absolutely, I mean, that's the course that sin takes in hardening our hearts. Um, so we see that now God has left his temple he's moved east he's in, in exile with Babylon in Babylon um, but then we, we also read some other judgments and, and Ezekiel begins to use a lot of like parables and, and stories that give picture to the ugliness and heinousness of the sins that, that Israelites have committed and, and just we're just going to breeze over these, but um, we may dig into one of them. In Ezekiel 15, God likens unfaithful Israel to a useless vine, just a stick that's thrown into the fire and charred, and it's of no use to anybody. Um, and in Ezekiel 7, and we'll spend a little bit of time on this, he likens uh, Israel to an adulterous wife. When I read this the first time, I, it just blew me away um, because it not only was very graphic, but it gives picture in such a way of sin that I think 
we often don't think about, um, just how heinous sin is. And when we read this, you begin to understand this is God and how he views sin. We often sugarcoat it. We whitewash it. But there's some very graphic pictures of, of what God has done in our lives and, um, and how he depicts sin. So I, I just want to read for us some of this from Ezekiel 16. Um, imagine you're hearing this. You're, you've been saved, but you've been sinning. And here's God um, kind of calling you out. In Ezekiel chapter 16, beginning at verse 4. And as for your birth, on the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling cloths. No eye pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you, but you were cast out on the open field, for you were abhorred on the day that you were born. Can you imagine this picture of just kind of this abandoned child still with its cord, bloodied, not clothed, naked, laying in this field. This is God's view of Israel. And then he says this, verse 6, And when I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you in your blood, Live. I said to you in your blood, Live. I made you flourish like a plant of the field, and you grew up and became tall, and arrived at full adornment. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age of love, and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered you with your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord, and you became mine. He goes on further to describe how he showers his bride with jewels and adornments of, of, and a crown of fine linen, you ate fine flour and honey. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. And your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect through the splendor that I had bestowed on you, declares the Lord. You've got this beautiful picture of God rescuing this abandoned child, raising it up, um, showering it with, with um, clothes and garments and food and and other um, ornaments became beautiful to the point where there, it, um, there was the renown of the, went forth through all the nations. But in verse 15, you trusted in your beauty and played the whore because of your renown and lavished your whorings on any passerby. Your beauty became his. You took some of your garments and made for yourself colorful shrines, and on them played the whore. The like has never been nor ever shall be. You also took your beautiful jewels of my gold and of my silver, which I had given you, and you made for yourself images of men, and with them played the whore. And this just goes on to describe in further and further detail um, that Israel didn't even like play the prostitute to like earn money. Israel paid money to be a prostitute, um, prostituted. And, and verse 36 highlights the issue. How sick is your heart? How sick is your heart? It's a sick, hardened heart that leads to this sort of abomination, an increasing abomination, even as Paul highlighted. 
this is a disgusting and gross and awful picture of sin and, and, re, and rebellion against a holy God who has done nothing but bless us. And you would think, discipline comes, I'm gonna, you, you're going to treat me this way, I'll treat you that way, I'll cast you out. No, that is not how God responds. Look with me at verse 59 of chapter 16. Even in light of all of this, you've become worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. What did God do with Sodom? He destroyed Sodom. Took him out. And God says, you were worse than that. But in verse 59, here's what he says. For thus says the Lord God, I will deal with you as you have done, and you have despised the oath and breaking the covenant, yet I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish for you an everlasting covenant. Verse 62, I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall be know that I am the Lord, that you may remember and be confounded, and that never open your mouth again because of your shame when I atone for all that you have done, declares the Lord. God will atone for all of this evil, all of this sin that Israel has committed. God will rescue them from themselves. This is amazing. Um, we see this, obviously, even as believers. When we reflect upon the life that we've led in our sin, in rejection and rebellion against God, and he comes and rescues us from that. Um, this is a beautiful picture of God staying faithful to his own word and to his own covenant, despite Israel's rejection and um, prostitution of their covenant, God still is faithful to his covenant. What a beautiful thing that it ends with, that God will atone for all that they have done. Now that atonement itself is a horrific event in history, um, but it is something that secures our salvation and Israel's salvation as well. So we see God bringing judgment upon Israel, and in the interest of time, we need to speed up. Um, but he also doesn't let the other nations by. God's judgments aren't just for his people, as if those outside the covenant kind of get away with things, right? Um, our, you know, once you're in the covenant, expectations are high, but since you're not in the covenant, since you're not a believer, it's all right, you know, your, your, your uh, standards are lower. No, that's not the case. God holds them to account as well. And that's what we see in chapters 25 through 32 is God bringing judgment upon other nations. Um, and we'll rush through these a little bit. But in chapter 25, we read that he brings uh, judgment upon the nation of uh, the Ammonites or Ammon. God judges them for mocking and rejoicing over Israel's demise. Um, Moab, Sair, Edom, and Philistia, they acted revengefully against Judah, so God brings judgment upon them. And then we see judgment upon two greater nations of Tyre and Sidon and Egypt in chapters 26 through 28. Um, God judges them for their sin. They seized upon Israel's demise, um, which displeased God. And the prince of Tyre set himself up saying, I am God, I am a God. And so for his idolatrous worship, God judges Tyra. 
Uh, God in chapters 29 through 32 also brings judgment on Egypt. Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, had set himself up against God by claiming that he made the Nile and that it belonged to him. And obviously the prince of Egypt, that they had, I'm sorry, um, in their pride, Egypt had pursued idolatry and had enslaved the Israelites. And for this and other transgressions, God will bring great judgment. And so the other nations do not escape God's judgment either. God will bring that judgment. Any questions at this point? High-level overview, folks. Hopefully you guys can do some deep diving on your own and unstick those pages. So we have Ezekiel's call. We've looked at some of the judgments that God has, the, the means by which he uses some street theater, as well as obviously some of these parables. And you can read some of the other examples in there. And then we see in chapter 33, a fugitive comes to Ezekiel in chapter 20, uh, 33, uh, verse 21. The city, he declares, the city has been struck down. It's done. Israel has been, the, the Jerusalem has been destroyed. The temple is destroyed. And it happened, just as God had prophesied it would. And at this point, you start seeing Ezekiel turning the corner of what he's prophesying, what he's saying, into hope. Hope of restoration. Hope of uh, a new temple. And so, even though the temple has been destroyed, judgment has come. This is not the end of the story. Hope is restored. In chapters 34, we see a little bit of prophecy against the shepherds of Israel. The shepherds who were to care for their sheep, who were to protect them, who were to comfort them, instead became self-serving fat slobs. They became self-serving shepherds. They didn't care for the sheep, they only cared for themselves. They fed themselves, they have not fed the sheep. So what we see in the book of Ezekiel is there's a big issue of leadership. The leadership has also failed its people. And as a result, those as the church goes, right, so goes the world, as, as the leaders go, so go the members. Um, it's, it's important, leadership is critical. And the shepherds who have been tasked with guarding and protecting the sheep have failed. And as a result, the people have erred in their way and God holds these shepherds to account. And so you have these shepherd, failed shepherds in, in chapter 34, verses 1 through 10. But it is met with the faithful shepherd in chapter 34, verse 11. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered so I will seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. 
verse 16, I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak, the fat, and the strong. I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. In verse 29, And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. Who is this David to whom he is referring? Jesus. He promises that final um, hope in the Messiah. God will rescue his sheep. He will seek them out and he will rescue them. What we see then, as we need to accelerate even more, um, you've heard of the Valley of Dry Bones. Um, in Ezekiel chapter 37, God gives Ezekiel another vision of this desert filled with very, very dry bones. Okay, he highlights the fact that they were very dry bones. And in chapter 37, God says to Ezekiel, Son of man, can these bones live? And Ezekiel replies by saying, O Lord, only you know. And what God says to him, he says, prophesy over these bones. Prophesy over them. And so Ezekiel prophesies over them, and this is what he says. O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you. And you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. You've got this desert, dry sand, bones everywhere. And now you've got Ezekiel prophesying. And what did he say? Hear the word of the Lord. God will speak and bring life. What does this remind you of? God speaking and bringing life? Salvation. Salvation. Creation. Very much a picture of creation and salvation even. God making life where life does not exist. In Ephesians, we read of the fact that we are dead in our trespasses and sins but God makes us alive together with Christ. And in the same way, as he brought life into existence through his word in Genesis 1, we see him doing that here. Hear the word of the Lord. Put breath in you. God will put breath in us. And it very much pictures a recreation. So, we are left with... Um, the latter half of the book where we see this hope restored now God will um, continue to prepare the world uh, not only in raising up his people Israel and giving them a new heart but he's also going to destroy all evil and in chapters 38 through 39 we read of Gog and Magog um, which I believe are um, uh, Gog is, is a leader Magog are, are groups of people or lands that are surrounding the areas of Israel, is, is what they're referenced as. And they actually show up also, Gog and Magog, in Revelation 20, uh, along with Satan. 
um, where God, uh, where Satan un is unleashed, Gog and Magog, a leader and a, and a nation of people or, or groups of nations, seek to thwart God's plan for the Jews. And, and so this area, which I didn't spend a lot of time personally studying it, so I'm not prepared to fully speak on this, but it gives the idea that, that it's evil personified through nations and people. And, and it's an image of all evil nations who are seeking to destroy God's people. And that ultimately God will destroy them. And through Ezekiel 38 through 39, we read of great earthquakes that they'll experience, fires, they'll be struck down in fields and left for dead for the birds to eat. But it gives us picture that evil will finally and fully be eradicated. And God will prepare the land for a restored people and a restored temple. And so, um, as we come to a close here, we see later on a vision of a restored temple in chapters 40 through 46. God gives Ezekiel, he takes him on a personal tour, so to speak, of this new temple that God will build. Um, and what we see happening in chapters 43 through 1 through 5 is the glory of the Lord enters the temple again. God returns where he had once left. He left the temple because of the idolatrous worship. God cleanses the people of Israel by giving them a new heart, a flesh, where they can now truly worship him in spirit and in truth. He constructs a new temple, and he returns to his temple to be among his people. And in fact, the, very, the way the book ends as he describes this new um, area, well, we'll get there. Um, but the idea is the, the glory of the Lord returns. Now, there's some debate as to what this vision is. This is a literal rebuilding of a temple that God will institute um, the, the same sorts of uh, worship that he had instituted earlier. Is this a physical structure, or is this a picture of God being among his people? Um, I'm not prepared to give an answer on either side of those things, but we know that God has used a lot of visions and parables as examples throughout the entire book of Ezekiel, um, that it's not literal, um, but just another parable or a picture of what God aims to do. Others have different opinions on that. Um, I have no opinion on it at this point um, because of a lack of further study. But just know that there are different views on, on how people view this event of the vi uh, vision of the restored temple. But what happens, what also occurs is from this temple, there's a stream of water that leaves the temple and it moves to the east, to the southeast. And if you know where Jerusalem is, what's to the southeast of Jerusalem? Because it's the river that flows over to this great body of water. And that great body of water is the Dead Sea. And all of a sudden, there's life springing up all around the Dead Sea. And you get this picture of a new garden, of an, uh, we're teeming with new life and plants and fruit that's growing every month to be eaten. It's a great picture of recreation, of the new garden. And the name of the place, the Lord is there. God is with his people. In full peace, evil has been eradicated, hope is restored, and the Lord is there. What a great way to end this book. And what a great hope we have um, as we look forward to our restoration our glorification.
Some closing thoughts. God works through human messengers. God uses people to proclaim his message. Um, Now, I'm not asking you to go out and start laying on the side of the street for 390 days uh, or build a diorama. But he works through human messengers. 1 Peter 2.9. See if this references anything we read earlier. But you are a chosen race, speaking of us, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. How are we any different? We, as those who have been called out of this world, are now called to be priests, to go out and represent God to the people. And we do that by being a holy people, by being a holy people who are set apart. That's what holy means, to be set apart, that we might proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. We have the same task as Israel had given back during the um, during um, Exodus. Second Corinthians 5, 18 through 20 says, All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. We're priests. We're to live holy. We're to be ambassadors. This is our calling. So go out and be reminded that God uses us to draw others to himself. He uses messengers. The other thing I want to highlight is I mentioned earlier that the Mosaic Covenant was a conditional covenant. If you obey, you'll be blessed. If you disobey, you'll be cursed. They failed miserably, right? We fail miserably. Uh, The law does not save. The law of God does not save. All the law does, it reveals to us the condition of our hearts. We look at the law and see this is what holiness looks like, and we look at our own hearts and try to act upon that and recognize we can't. We're unable to. It's because we are unholy. And yet, salvation doesn't depend on our obedience to the law. It, it does depend on the obedience to the law, but it is not our obedience. It is ultimately Christ's faithful obedience to the law. God himself through Christ, Christ fulfills the law of God. He's the one who um, perfectly obeys the law of God. And it is that which is imputed to us when we turn to him in faith, where God looks at us and says, you have fully obeyed the law through Christ. But the law is meant for us to expose the realities of our sin. We read about this in Galatians 3.21. It's a tutor. It's a... um, see the law but the scripture imprisoned everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be to those who believe now before faith came we were held captive under the law imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed so then the law was our guardian or tutor until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith trusting God turning to him in faith is what saves you 
You can't obey the law. And obviously Israel is a great picture of that. And you should find yourself in that story and recognize that it is the promise of faith, the promise of God's covenant love to his people um, that is what is to um, cause us to worship him and turn to him. Um, but again, we end up in a place where the Lord is there. Any questions? Reflections? All right, well, look forward to Daniel next week. Um, take some time to maybe read it in, a, in preparation for that. And uh, let's close in prayer. Dear God, we just um, look at this book of Ezekiel, and even I'm overwhelmed at um, the pictures of sin that you depict in it, um, and certainly see myself in in those stories, Father, in, the, in those parables, and I'm sure we all do. Lord, we pray that you would help us to indeed uh, be priests and a holy nation as you have called us to, to, to live our lives in a holy manner uh, because we claim your name uh, and to live in a way that is inconsistent with that um, brings great shame to your name, Lord. Um, we bring great shame to your name, but you will vindicate your name and you have through the death of Christ um, in showing that you are faithful to your promises to your covenants and even um, to your judgments Father you warn out of love um, you, you bring discipline out of love and may we heed that discipline Lord uh, even as we reflect on what we've learned this morning Father uh, help that all to inform even our worship later today as we um, gather together as your church body, Lord. Thank you for this time. Again, we pray in your name. Amen.